Chapter Seven of the Honor of the Big Snows. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Honor of the Big Snows by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Seven, The Caribou Carnival. Jan had not played upon his violin since the coming of Jean de Gravois, but one evening he tuned his strings and said to Melis. They have been good to you, my Melise. I will give them the music of the violon. It was the big night at the post, the night that is known from Athabasca to Hudson's Bay as the night of the caribou roast. A week had passed, and there were no more furs to be disposed of. In the company's ledger each man had received his credit, and in the company's store the furs were piled high and safe. Three caribou had been killed by Paris and his hunters, and on this night, when Jan took down his violin from its peg in the wall, a huge fire blazed in the open, and on spits six inches in diameter the caribou were roasting. The air was filled with the sound and odor of the carnival. Above the fighting and snarling of dogs, the forest people lifted their voices in wild celebration forgetting, in this one holiday of the year, the silence that they would carry back into the solitudes with them. Numbers gave them courage of voice, and in its manifestation there was the savagery of the forests that hemmed them in. Shrill voices rose in meaningless cries above the roaring of the fire. Caribou whips snapped fiercely. Chippewyans, Crees, Eskimos and breeds crowded in the red glare. The factor's men shouted and sang like mad, for this was the company's annual good time, the show that would lure many of these same men back again at the end of another trapping season. Huge boxes of white bread were placed near to the fire. A tub of real butter, brought five thousand miles from across the sea for the occasion, was set on a gun-case thrown where the heat played upon it in yellow glory. In a giant copper kettle, over a smaller fire, bubbled and steamed half a barrel of coffee. The richness of the odors that drifted in the air set the dogs gathering upon their haunches beyond the waiting circle of masters, their lips dripping, their fangs snapping in an eagerness that was not for the flesh of battle and above it all there gleamed down a billion stars from out of the skies, the aurora flung its banners through the pale night, and softly the smoke rose straight up and then floated into the north, carried there by the gentle breath that spring was luring from out of the south. Jan picked his way through the cordon of dogs and the inner circle of men until he stood with the firelight flashing in his glossy hair and black eyes, and there, seated upon the edge of one of the bread-boxes, he began to play. It was not the low, sweet music of Cummins and the little Melis that he played now, but a wild, wailing song that he had found in the autumn winds. It burst above the crackling fire and the tumult of man and dog in a weird and savage beauty that hushed all sound, and life about him became like life struck suddenly dead. 
With his head bowed, Jan saw nothing, saw nothing of the wonder in the faces of the half-cringing little black men who were squatted in a group a dozen feet away, nothing of the staring amazement in the eyes that were looking upon this miracle he was performing. He knew only that about him there was a deep hush, and after a while his violin sang a lower song, and sweeter, and still softer it became, and more sweet, until he was playing that which he loved most of all, the music that had filled the little cabin when Cummins' wife died. As he continued to play, there came an interruption to the silence, a low refrain that was almost like that of the moaning wind. It grew beyond the tent circles of men, until a song of infinite sadness rose from the throats of a hundred dogs in response to Jan Thoreau's violin. To Jan it was like the song of life. The unending loneliness and grief of it stirred him to the quick of his soul, and unconsciously his voice rose and fell softly with the wailing of the brute chorus. But to the others it was a thing that rose portentous above their understanding, a miracle of mystery that smote them with awe, even as they surrendered themselves to the wonderful sweetness of the music. Cummins saw the change in his people, and understood what it meant. He saw the surrounding cordon become thinner as man crushed closer to man, and he saw strained faces turned from the player to where the dogs sat full-throated upon their haunches, with their heads pointed straight to the stars in the sky. Suddenly he burst into a volume of wild song, and made his ways through the crouching Eskimos to Jan. "'For the love of heaven, play no more of that!' he cried in the boy's ear. "'Play something fast!' Jan lifted his head as if from a dream. In an instant he perceived the strange effect of his music, and his bow raced across the strings of his violin in a rhythm swift and buoyant, his voice rising shrill and clear in words familiar to them all. Oh, ze caribou, ze caribou, he rose on high, just under ze sky, ze big white caribou. With a yell Cummins joined in, waving his arms and leaping in the firelight. The spell was broken. Williams and Mookie and the rest of the company's men burst forth in song. Jan's violin leaped in crescendos of stirring sound, and where before there had been a silent circle of awestruck men, there was now a yelling din of voices. The dogs lowered their heads again and licked their chops at the odors in the air. With a yell, Mookie and three Crees dashed toward the fire, long-hooked poles in their hands, and as the caribou carcasses were turned upon their huge spits, and their dripping fat fell sizzling into the flames, the wild chorus of men and dogs and Jan's violin rose higher, until Cummins' great voice became only a whisper in the tumult. The third caribou had been twice turned upon its spit, and Mookie and his crees paused in waiting silence, 
their hooked poles gripping the long bar that rested horizontally across the arms of two stout posts driven into the earth close to the fire. At this signal there was a final outburst from the waiting horde, and then a momentary silence fell as Cummins sprang upon one of the bread-boxes and waved his arms frantically above his head. "'Now!' he shouted. "'Now! Zikaraboo!' With eyes flashing with excitement, Jan stood before Cummins, and his violin shrieked out the wild tune to a still wilder response of untamed voices. "'Now!' yelled Cummins again. The wilderness song, that was known from Athabasca to Hudson's Bay, burst forth in a savage enthusiasm that reached to the skies. Oh, ze caribou, ze caribou, he rose on high, just under ze sky, ze big white caribou. Cummins drew his revolver and blazed fiercely into the air. Now, he shrieked. Oh, ze caribou, ze caribou, he brown and juice and sweet. Ze caribou, he very polite, he rose on high, just under ze sky, he ready now to come and eat. With yells that rose above the last words of the song, Muki and his crees tugged at their poles, and the roasted caribou fell upon the snow. Jan drew back, and with his violin hugged under one arm, watched the wild revelers, as, with bared knives flashing in the firelight, they crowded to the feast. Williams, the factor, who was puffing from his vocal exertions, joined him. "'Looks like a fight, doesn't it, Jan? Once I saw a fight at a caribou roast.' "'So did I.' said Jan, who had not taken his eyes from the jostling crowd. "'It was far to the west and north,' continued Williams, "'beyond the great slave country.' "'Far beyond,' said Jan, lifting his eyes quietly. "'It was very near to the great bear.' The factor stared at him in amazement. "'You saw it?' he exclaimed. But Jan turned away, as if he had heard nothing, and passed beyond the packs of waiting dogs to restore his precious violin to its peg on the cabin wall. The factor's words had stirred deep memories within him, and for the first time since he had come to the post he spoke no word to Melisse when he found her wakeful and friendly in her cot. Neither was it the old Jan Thoreau who returned to the excitement about the great fire. With his long hunting knife flashing above his head, he plunged into the throng around the caribou, crowding and jostling with the others, his voice rising in shrill cries as he forced himself through to the edge of the fire. Cummins was there, kneeling with turned-up sleeves and greasy hands beside the huge roast, and when he saw Jan, he stared at him in wonder. There was neither laughter nor song in Jan Thoreau's voice. It was vibrant with a strange savageness, which was more savage than the wildest yells of the half-breed Crees, and his great eyes burned fiercely as they rested for an instant upon Cummins' face. 
Close behind Cummins stood Williams. Jan saw him, and his knife dropped to his side. Then, so quickly that the startled factor drew back a step, Jan sprang to him. "'Ze fight as ze great bear!' he cried in swift eagerness. "'For who you fight as ze great bear?' The factor was silent, and the muscles of his arms grew like steel as he saw the madness in Jan's face. Suddenly he reached out and gripped the boy's wrists. Jan made no effort to evade the clutch. "'For who you fight?' he cried again. "'For who you fight at ze great bear?' "'We tried to kill a man, but he got away,' said Williams, speaking so low that only Jan heard. "'He was—' the factor stopped. "'Ze missioner!' panted Jan. The wild light went out of his eyes as he stared up at Williams, and the softer glow which came into them loosened at once the factor's grip on the boy's wrists. Yes, the missioner. Jan drew back. He evaded meeting the eyes of Cummins as he made his way among the men. There was a new burst of song as Mookie and his Crees pulled down a second caribou but the boy paid no attention to the fresh excitement. He thrust his knife into its sheath and ran, ran swiftly through the packs of dogs fighting and snarling over the scraps that had been thrown to them, past Mabala, who was watching the savage banquet around the big fire, and into the cabin to Melise. Here he flung himself upon his knees and for the first time he caught the baby in his arms, holding her close to him and rocking her to and fro, as he cried out sobbingly the words which she did not understand. "'And when I find him and kill him, I will come back to you, my angel Melise,' he whispered. "'And then you will love Jan Thoreau for letting out the blood of a missioner.' He put her back into the little bed, kissed her again, took down his violin from its peg in the wall, and turned to the door. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline